Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Ask for an almond. Sometimes you just need an almond. Um, we're starting now. Okay. Um, all right. Today we have our friend from across the street, the right reverend. No, no, no. I'm not the right reverend. I'm just the reverend. Reverend? So there's reverend. A, is that a real thing? Oh, it's a real thing. It goes all the way back to England. So really? A, the reverend is an ordained person. The right reverend is a bishop. Always. So we, re- but we have a real right reverend today. Yes, yes. Could you introduce our right reverend? While yes, this is the bishop of Texas, Andy Doyle. Welcome to Austin, Andy. Thank you. Nice to be back. So you, you're the right reverend. You're just reverend. Just the reverend. And I'm just Luke. Well, but are you the reverend Luke Norsworthy in your tradition? No. Is there? There's no the rev Pastor, before. They no. have any honorific titles? Uh, definitely not honorific. Uh, I get preacher. My actual job title is senior minister, uh-huh. which doesn't have the same pomp or circumstance of reverend or the right reverend. The alliteration of right reverend is is enviable. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure that our Lord was clear that titles were not something for his followers to undertake. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of things we don't pay attention to. Yeah. I think that's one thing Jesus would be like, but I wasn't that serious about it. That's right. <laughs> that counts. Um, okay, so Meryl has been saying for many months that I need to get to know you. Yes. And you agree. That's the yes for. First of all, you have great hair. I Thank want to just you. acknowledge that up front. I can't see it because it's a podcast. That's true. We could put a picture online. Um, Meryl, tell me why you've been saying for months that I need to get, we need to get connected. Well, I think I think uh, Andy is my bishop, so I don't want to. Oh, hold on. Does does that mean you're his actual boss? No. Oh, but and uh, it's uh, I am bishops in our tradition are um, kind of chief among equals, right? So I have been given certain roles in the church, some of which has authority over Marilyn his work, but I'm not his boss. That's about as accurate as you could say it. Uh, I wanted to get you two together, uh, partly because I respect the work you're doing and the, and the fact that the, the people you were interviewing are difference makers in a world where we need a lot of difference making. Mm-hmm. And I just think that, that uh, Bishop Doyle, Andy Doyle, is uh, a thought leader. He mm-hmm. does a lot of thinking about where the church w- should go or might go, uh, where it's going to be taken, whether it wants to go or not, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, has has been a prolific author yeah. while a bishop, and I just think there's a lot of things that uh, aspects of Andy's uh, work as a bishop. Here's one a good million dollar word for you: his episcopacy. Is that a real word? Oh yeah, you gotta you gotta drop that word. The episcopacy. Here the episcopacy. Would that be like my Church of Christ episcopacy? Exactly. Same thing. Good enough. In my denomination, that's what we would call it. No bishops okay. are in. Uh, the word episcopal means bishops. Yeah. Right? And so it's the episcopos overseer mm-hmm. in the New Testament. And, and so the, that's a full job. That's a lot of, of, of work to be over in oversight and mm-hmm. relationship with hundreds of clergy and congregations uh, of all sorts all across East Texas and Austin to Waco back to Houston. So it's a lot of work. He is, of course, he's the head of an office of staff of mm-hmm. people that work in, in Houston in his office. So there's a wide range of, of duties that, that fall to him, that fall to any bishop in any diocese. But when you add to that 
uh, his commitment to being an author and a, uh, a real advocate for missional communities mm-hmm. and, and the role he's played in our diocese of helping us reconcile with one another after some real stress yeah. for many, many years. I just think he's uh, certainly a, a, a good asset in terms of you're, he's a good person for you to know for the yeah. work that you do, Luke, mm-hmm. as, a, as a preacher and a connector of people. Uh, I'm proud of him as my bishop, so I wanted you to know him. And but I also just think it's uh, people that are going to listen to this podcast need to know that Andy Doyle is somebody that they should read. They should look at his they body of work. Yeah, that's really nice. Thank you. You're welcome. I I preached a month and a half ago across the street at uh, St. Matthew's. Right. And I did not get an introduction nearly that good. Yeah, I, that was pretty amazing, actually. I mean, I, I almost feel like I owe money. I mean, that was so... I, I think he really does work for you, because that kind of introduction <laughs> typically only happens to someone superior. No, that was amazing. Yeah. It was really humbling, actually. Well, thank you, Mary. That was a good introduction. The, um, so I looked you up, and I found that we have a connecting point, not only uh, with the fact that you used to live in Denton, Texas, because you went yes. to UNT. I did... Seven years of ministry in Denton. Oh, really? Great place. Love um, Denton. But the what? What did you study undergrad? Fine arts. I'm a, a painting and drawing major. That makes sense. It's a great art. Sure, school. it does. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a great. It was. Uh, the, I mean, the, the the ability to study under some some artists who were showing in New York at the time, postmodern. So, I mean, it was a great time and. Joanne, my wife, and I started dating during that time period, so those were the salad days, as they say. The salad days. I don't know what that means. That's okay. Okay. I Raising like- Arizona. It's from the movie Raising Arizona. They kind of think back on the great days that they had. Those were the salad days. Okay. I'll go with that. Now, I've got a buddy who's a uh, preacher, but he started off as a musician, and he writes sermons like he writes songs. Really? And so he thinks about like, okay, here's first verse, and then let's go back uh-huh. to the chorus, and first, second verse, and chorus, and then the bridge, and then huh. we go. And I, I, so I think the artist comes at the preaching task differently. Do you think you're, obviously, you say painting, is that what, mm-hmm. is that your medium? Um, do you, how do you feel like your, that form of art influences the art of preaching? Well, I would, I think that the, for me, both preaching, teaching, writing, uh, all of those things are uh, a process of listening to what the art or medium dictates. Mm-hmm. So I always found that uh, you might have an idea of a painting, but once you started the work, actually the painting begins a conversation with you. And if you enter into that conversation, you actually allow the painting to begin to dictate the draw from you of your thoughts, creativity, whatever, your paint, colors, yeah. all that. And so I find the same way in preaching, teaching, and writing that it's uh, very much a, a process of allowing the kind of conversation that I'm engaged in, whether it's an imaginary audience reading a book or the book itself, the topic or whatever that kind of pulls pulls on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so your your newest book, the the Jesus Heist, yes, was endorsed by the last guest on the podcast, really, Becca Stevens, really, yeah, she's I love, fantastic, uh, yeah, I I think she's I, a saint among us. I said on the podcast, she's one of my twenty top twenty favorite people yeah. in the world. Yeah, 
How high in your ranking of people would she make? Top 100? Becca? Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, she's pretty high up there. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, part of it is that what I love about Becca is um, the trajectory of priesthood is not the one she's writing. And, and I and by that I mean I think she rides an arc of a living with God and people that uh, is just be, it's just a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah. Um, and those are uh, and I, I would just say I'm a huge fan, and that I think that she is a rare human being. Yeah. Um, and and and. Uh, you know, I, she's going to be speaking at our clergy conference actually in, next week. Yeah, so she's going to be back. She'll be with us. We, I'll meet her then. I, I don't know her. We so Christian, who mm-hmm. you work with, Meryl, yeah, used to intern for her. Right. When I was talking with her, I was I'm going to be in Nashville next week, and the oh, reason that well, I was going to, but she's going to be here at the clergy uh, conference. Right. But she will be, I think, in July. She'll be in Austin, and we're going to connect then. But I would just like you to look over on that shelf right there and see the purple little. Bottle, do you see that? First yeah. row up. Oh, yeah, yeah, what does yeah. it say on it? I can't. Yes, Thistle Farms. Thistle. Yeah. Okay. Did she bring that for you, or did you actually go online and buy it? I actually went online and bought it. Good. That's I just great. want that to be on the record that I that had. That you did that. Oh. That you yeah. actually did what you said you were going to do. Exactly. Becca, he did it. Yes, that's what. I just I wanted <laughs> that to be said. Um, <laughs> but oh, you know, now here's the thing. This is really interesting because because I um, am just. Right now, I'm doing a lot of thinking around vocation and what it means in that kind of true sense of the word to 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 receive to be a part of a call and invitation by God to to work. And actually, one of the things that I think is amazing about Becca is, and part of why she says, in some ways, she um, I'm not I'm not uh, or I am pretty sure, I would say in a positive way, I'm pretty sure that's actually the invitation that all of us have from God to be that kind of transformative presence in the world. And I recognize that not everybody has either the kind of capacity to to live that way uh, or even the gifts to do all of that. And certainly a society filled with people doing that work, uh, we might not, you know, we need people to drive taxis and do other things. It's just to say that, I think part of it is she somehow embodies something that's beyond what is priesthood, minister. I mean, she's doing what God invites her to do. Yeah. And that I think that's the high calling hmm. in some way. Hmm. And that's what we're all invited to do? Mm-hmm. I actually and think that's true. How would you tell someone if they're trying to figure out how to, how to do that themselves? Because you look at Becca and you go, well, I can't do... I'm not going to be CNN's Hero of the Year in 2016 like she was. Right. I, I How do you scale that down for normal? I think for normal, part of, and I think we get this, all of us, somehow, in, in, in our professional ways. We, we live in such a professional society, a uh, society of expertise, rather than a society of craft. But I... I, I do wonder about whether or not uh, we've lost something in all of that. And so I do think you have to scale it back. I think part of it is just being in relationship with people. And part, I think there's some sense of our work in, in the work of 
as, as clergy pastors, religious leaders. I think there's a piece of this for us which is finding our capacity to listen well to what God is doing. So you have that great passage uh, with um, Esther and Mordecai comes, you know, mm-hmm. so, you know, uh, Mordecai comes to Esther and, and, and he serves as the voice of God to convince Esther to save, to do the work that's needed to save her people. And I think there's something in our work that is Mordecai work. And and it doesn't mean that everybody's going to go out and save the world. I mean, Becca is kind of a an amazing person who's crossed these boundaries around uh, women caught in sex trade and providing work for them and everything. But that does that not mean that that we can't play the role of helping the people in need discover um, our, the people who we are in touch with? So we have a capacity to actually bring it down to a level and say, well, who? Who are you in touch with? Who's reaching out to you right now and listening uh, to God and people in the midst of people's lives? I, I just don't think it has to be that difficult, actually. Yep. Yep. But we make it difficult, and we think it's about becoming a pastor, a bishop, a priest. We think we've so professionalized that the only professional Christians are the ones, you know, you, professional Christians get paid to do this particular job. And I think that twists and turns what is true in all, the whole Testament about this invitation of God to uh, to create a particular kind of community in the world, which is yeah. from the very beginning. Yeah, and I know some of your work has been focused on this missional community stuff where we're all a part of God's mission. And in my denomination, we talk about the priesthood of all believers, yeah. which is a, a biblical concept, but it's emphasized uh, a great deal. And so that's part of the reason why... Um, we don't have fancy titles because right. we want to kind of level the playing field, yeah. which not that there's something wrong with titles in all seriousness, but we talk about that. But I still think even in my denomination, which was founded on the idea that we are a priesthood of like everyone can do a wedding in our tradition, basically right. everyone can perform these sacramental uh, significant moments and things and acts. Um, but we still fall into the temptation to think it's just the people who are paid to do it that, that matter. Yes. And I love your word about, like the craft of it, and uh, Rob Bell in his in his book uh, How to Be Here talks about the difference of success and craft. Mm-hmm. And success is often what we chase after, like, hey, I want to be a big deal, I want to be whatever position. But craft is just enjoying and valuing whatever you're doing to see the significance in that very moment. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think everybody has that, no matter where they are in their journey, where wherever they are in their life, wherever they. I mean, that's the. the it's always. There's always a moment to, to, to think about that, to wonder about that, be curious about it. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that I, that's been out of my uh, realm of possible is this position of like bishop. Because in my tradition, like you're a preacher, that's, that's it. We don't have a denominational headquarter. When you, it, how, how do you see this function like as a bishop? Um, most people would think this is a you know a prestigious title. You have a great deal of significance and clout, and people follow you. Um, when you're seeing your work, how do you see the craft in that? Well, uh, my my world is a very odd world to live in. Let me just I'll just kind of name that for a second. Mm-hmm. And 
and to say that I have very different opinions about what the actual history and lineage of that position is um, from a scriptural standpoint versus actually what I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I spend the best parts of my day are with actual people working to help ministry happen, uh, to make space, to use resources, to take this kind of broken vessel called church and make it work for the kingdom of God in some way. I mean, that's yep. that's what I see as my work. And so that work encompasses budget CEOs. Uh, I have fiduciary responsibility that's laid on me by the rest of the world uh, as a nonprofit organization. So like, there's a whole professional piece to that that has to get done. Then there's the preaching, teaching, the uh, kind of uh, the one who Episcopos gets to kind of episcope see all, you know, to has this vision piece, which is to ask the questions and uh, help bring people together. So one of the powers I do have is actually to call all the clergy and the people of my denomination to come together. I'd mm-hmm. say, we all need to be here. And they'll go, yes, we will come. And so I have some power of convening, if you will, that yep. can be used. Uh, I think another piece of it is is uh, trying to break open in this age the old model of bishop as commander in chief to the one who's curious and invites us all to be curious about what God might be doing here. And so it's a different. There's I think there's some shifting models in terms of what we've inherited traditionally to where we're where we're going. And then I, I think there's another piece which is. At the end of the day, not unlike your priesthood of all believers, you know the bishop uh, in in the uh, New Testament really is the person. It was really just a priest, a presider, the person. Hey, that's the guy who can set the table really well and remembers all the prayers. They're going to be our presider, priest type person, and that person has those same skills over there, but they're really good with money. So, actually, bishops in, in the in the tradition of the New Testament are closer to Judas and the purse keeper than they are <laughs> to the priest. And so, just to kind of name that and say that those presider and roles that we think of around um, Episcopal actually have to do, they're closer together, I think, than we think today. Bishop-priest today is very separate. Yeah. Andy, don't You've said something a couple times that I think is illuminative of, of how you talk to us as, as clergy and right. Is there's an idea that there is a church that has its ministry and its mission, but there's also this uh, parallel and often unrelated reality that God is at work in our communities, out of, in a sense, out ahead of us, already at work, gathering people, uh, creating momentum for good. Uh, that's happening in what could be called in classical language in secular situations and this sort of thing. Uh, isn't that sort of the trigger for the formation of missional communities is for us to go find out what God's already doing? Is that the... Yeah, I mean, the, I don't... I mean, for me, I, I find that the buffered self and buffered communities and uh, this idea that there's a secular profane world uh, versus a sacred world... That that's all that's all new thinking. That's not rooted in our scripture. That's not the kind of cosmic uh, understanding of the Old and New Testament. That we, when we look back to that, and in fact, the um, kind of most ancient tradition is that God is out in the midst, working 
I mean, what are we going to say that God only works with the most faithful people? That that we don't even say. That's not even part of our tradition. And yet we live that way as if God isn't working with somebody who doesn't go to church or somebody who is out there just trying to figure out the best and that God's not a part of that person's life and working through that person in the world that somehow God gets only tied up into these clear boundary buffered worlds of church, non-church, you know, pastor, priest, you know, lay per all. That's just all, that's not, that's actually not part of our tradition. We've made it part of our tradition. We've inherited it from, from modernism and we've, we've, we've really allowed the world through our own thinking to live into that. Oh, we're secular. Fine. Thank you very much. But I don't think, I think God really is working in people's lives. And so if God's working in people's lives then we should go out and look. And so it's even in, uh, because what we do in the buffered self is say, Oh, that's an awful situation. God can't be a part of that. Blessings only happen here. I mean, all of a sudden it does these weird theological, spiritual things, whereas, in, as I read the scripture, God's involved in really awful things in the midst of really horrific lies, and uh, in the midst of genocides, God's present, and and in fact, God's present only because God invited, called, cajoled, pushed somebody into that situation and works through them, right? So, so God, I think God works in all of that and is constantly working. And, and in fact, part of what is a hindrance to the church among us is that we have become so bifurcated, it's hard for us to see God at work in lives. And so we miss, in, a, in, in what we would call a secular film, we, we miss the gospel in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We miss the, you know, or whatever. I mean, we, yeah. You know, whatever it is. The okay, so traditionally, the Christian tradition has said God is in all things. There's the, the sacred and the profane. That division, that bifurcation, as you would say, does not exist. It's been something that we've added recently. It's a it's a modernist worldview. What do you think the fear is that creates that bifurcation, that separation of well, this is God and this isn't God? What do you think leads us to have that sort of mentality? Well, I think it's really I think it's really strange, isn't it? I mean, I think that the whole movement and my, I would I, I this is my opinion only, but I, I do think that in some way the um institutionalization of the organization of church itself is the great giver of that idea. Uh and you know you I'm kind of too much in my head right now. I just kind of name that, but I. But we, so we as church perpetuate this to some degree. No, we uh, completely for our own for our own protection. I mean, think of the journey in four centuries between a Christ who tells Peter to put away his sword and the killing of a philosopher by a Christian crowd. Four centuries. It deeply rooted in the Jewish tradition that we are part of is that the fall doesn't actually take place in Genesis, but takes place when a brother kills his brother. That the, the actual sense of scarcity and self-protection or that God loves me different than you, that these kind of things come into the kind of basic human 
nature in some way. And so I kind of want to tap that as saying it. On the one hand, it seems so natural for us to be self-protective. And our organizations heighten that in some way. Um, but it, didn't, it doesn't take long for us to get off. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy. Yeah. And so it sounds like you know, your prescription, which is not just you originally, but like you are part of the movement of saying, let's move away from the sort of, we're the ivory tower, this is the right thing, but moving out to like God's work in the world, how do we participate with what, what God is doing, this missional movement? How do you see that as salvation away from this sort of um, bifurcated worldview? Safety and security is not a gospel value. Hmm. We, we worship a God who becomes vulnerable in human form and, and dies uh, rather than participate in the violence between brothers uh, and uh, sisters. And uh, this kind of mimetic, as Gerard would say, this mimetic. And we, we mm-hmm. experience, a, we, we worship a God who rather than force us to worship or to love, or to create an exchange system, actually just simply lays down God's life uh, for us as Christians. This is, and so to say something about salvation, you know, resurrection only comes after death. Salvation comes after that. I mean, there, that in in some way, actually, until we lay down those things that are so of value and seem so. Uh, risky to 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 let go of or the boundaries that protect if it, until we kind of walk out in the world and experience true vulnerability on behalf of and for the sake of another person no matter whether they're christian or not it's very difficult for us to understand the theology of the cross why is vulnerability essential to that i think it comes to a place of understanding um of what it means to be open. I mean, I think that, that in, in, in the world that we live, it's very difficult to be open with people. And so are we, are we willing to really be open and give ourselves to another person? I think there's some true, there's something true about that in our gospel that we, we proclaim over and over again that that until we can do that relationally um, is is hard for us to understand and so and 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 we have so made it into a physical thing like i mean this is the whole piece around vulnerability with with another person if it's is if it's simply physical if it's simply about power if it's simply i mean all of that misses this complete giving of oneself over to another person as a deep gospel value. God gives God's self over to risk creation, to risk a people, to risk the calling of individuals. To, I mean, that God, I mean, God does, if God is God, God requires nothing. And yet God gives of God's self in this making of the universe and cosmos and God gives of himself and or God's self in the midst of this business of crucifixion. And so there's a I think there's a whole piece of that that's part of the story that if there's no vulnerability in it for us, 
then it's only half measures and nice thoughts. Yeah. Uh, Ian Cron, uh from your all's tribe uh, wrote about the idea of the open soul versus the closed soul. And I think he gets that from Aquinas maybe, but he talks about the, the postures towards the world and the closed soul, this uh, pusillanimous is the word that uh, is uh, the Latin word that, that comes from that same idea of like we're, we're closed off, we're protected, and that seems to be just a natural posture that many of us have towards the world of fear and protection, like I'm going to close myself off. But the way of the cross is always this open soul po- posture of I'm vulnerable to the world, I'm open to what the, wor- the worst that the world can offer. And I think we see that obviously in the way of Jesus. The, the cross is the, full, the fullest picture we have of what God is like, and that's his vulnerability. But for us, it's not natural. Like, I want to close off. I want to protect myself. As you're pastoring the flock, as you're leading the congregation, trying to be a church that's open wide in this vulnerable posture, like, how are you doing that? Like, what are you pointing them to? What are, you, what are practices that, that help people enter into this? Well, I, I, I would say that we're in a very difficult place because we have become so accustomed that right now to talk about these things the the what I call the hive mind of the organization reinterprets it all into a comfortable place. Explain the hive mind. So my wife and I call the, the we're on a neighborhood listserv, right? So okay, uh, which is like our neighborhood, and yeah. we're all on the not all of us, but there's a bunch of us on there. And you know, if you want to sell something, or you're curious about a translator or a babysitter, or maybe you're looking for a plumber, and you want you ask the hive mind which is a way in which, you know, like Borg ask you, everybody gets to pitch in their best ideas on who the plumber is. You ask the hive mind. Well, do you know Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast and Slow? Thinking Slow, yeah, right. Nobel Prize. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, organizations, yeah. I think, have a hive mind. They yeah. have a, a mind that works slow in yeah. that it takes a great deal to come uh, to grips with complex ideas. Mm-hmm. Change behavior requires slow thinking, right? So that's part of what Kahneman teaches us through his research is that that the normal way in which we actually, the only way to survive and navigate the world of speed is to live in, in the fast mind, the mind that is reactional, interprets everything, puts it in boxes, that there's mm-hmm. no time for long. Day. I actually think that the organization, the hive mind of church, if you will, whether it's mine, yours, or anybody else's, uh, the only reason to have these large organizations is so you can have a hive mind and speed through processes that would normally take a small group of 10 people a long time to deal with. Yeah. That's actually the business of corporations, which is to buy down the cost, time, and energy spent on simple things. So it is to live naturally in the quick mindset of things. Yeah. And I think the church experiences that too. So part of my answer is it's very difficult to do what you just asked. Because the hive mind of church reinterprets everything, puts it in its box, and says what you really mean is this. So when you say that we want to be missional, what you really mean is we want to be nice to the people who come and find us. So it's like a complete reinterpretation of everything. So the gospel, we actually, that's what the Jesus heist is about, is trying to discover a a hermeneutic, a way of reading scripture that is missional, because everything we preach has to do with coming into church for the most part. We reinterpret everything. So I think that's, a, that's the biggest piece of where my work is right now, is just can we even think of the Scripture as talking to us in a different way versus the way it's been talking to us for the last 60 years? So that's a, I think that's a big piece. I think the other one is you got to go out and do it. Uh, somebody today asked me, 
how do I get, you know, beyond getting my parishioners to go to a program on racism, essentially, how do I get my parishioners to uh, understand the difficult life that people who are victims of racism or people live within a culture of racism actually have to deal with on a day-to-day basis? And the only answer is that you actually you're going to reach a point where where information is only going to go so far, and at the end of the day, until they actually live with, relate to, experience, and know the life of somebody who lives as a victim of societal racism on a daily, hourly basis, will they come to any understanding of what that is? So at some day, you actually have to leave the protection of the cocoon of church and go out and do it. So we are trying to leverage funds, leverage energy, leverage anything to get people outside their doors to do it. Mm-hmm. Across the, you taught me this, diocese? Diocese. Diocese. Diocese, yeah. Yeah, diocese. Across your jurisdiction. Can yeah. I say jurisdiction? 50, yeah, 57 counties. It's adjudicatory, right? A ju- Man, you got some jurisdiction. Great words. That's the Methodist, I think, use adjudicatory. Okay. Jurisdiction. In, we don't even have instruments at most of our churches. So, yeah, okay. There, there's a lot of counties. There's a lot of buildings. Right. The amount of resources you have just in real estate, hundreds of millions of dollars, I assume. Maybe billions. Um, you don't have to yes. answer that. There, but yeah, no, it is. I don't know. We manage billions of dollars worth of assets, mm-hmm. financial, invested, corporate, uh, and uh, real estate. And so in the church, even the church I'm a part of, it's we have a, a nice building that's just about all paid off, and it, it's all paid off. And it's this great piece of property in Austin, real estate in Austin, as you know, it's not cheap. And when you have a resource like this, there is a temptation that we just got to take care of it. And we have this, we have this stuff, and obviously it's on a smaller scale than what you're overseeing, but organizations by their very nature work towards status quo to maintain themselves. The missional idea that you're pushing us towards is to not care just about myself, but to think beyond myself. You run an organization that's trying to, to, to keep itself afloat. You're trying to say, don't worry about just keeping yourself afloat. You're in a tough predicament. Yeah, well, I will tell you, this is what I will say, is that Johnson & Johnson already knows this. Churches haven't figured it out, but everybody else who wants to be around in 50 years has figured this out, that you actually have to give away something in order to gain yeah. something. So, yes, you might think that all we have to do is improve performance here on our one piece of property, multi-pastor site with our building and everything, but I will tell you, that if you take your congregation right now and you plotted out maybe marginal growth, let's say that you're really lucky and you outperform every other church in the country and you get 5% growth every year for the next 50 years, you chart that, right? Now you chart your income on that same basis, right? So you're going to do a little bit better. I'm, I'm, I can be positive that Thank you, you have the ability to, to actually continue and outperform the uh, basic annual decline. And so you do all that now. Why don't you add in the cost of electricity that goes up the same amount, the cost of salaries that go up the same amount, the cost of insuring your pastors that goes up. So you put all the costs around that. What you will find is a, uh, an organization that in 50 years is upside down. So actually the only way to outperform is to expand, grow, and multiply. And, and so even if, if you're going to say to me, Andy, that's all nice theology, but at the end of the day, I've got this great side. And this, I'm going to tell you that financially and business-wise, 
if you don't change the behavior of the organization out of a pure business model, you're sunk. All right. I'm good with that. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like we can talk theology, which I actually think is the better place for us to be because it's, mm-hmm. it speaks to who we are and this is where we are. But sometimes people are like, no, nah, we're doing fine. And in the South, I think that's a really big thing because churches in the South do pretty well. But mm, not over 50 years, they don't. Yeah. The idea of you have to give away. It's obviously the way of Jesus. Like, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. And... Seth Godin, who's an internet kind of guru, yeah. his idea is like you build a tribe, you give stuff away. That's how you yes. connect to people. And so I think the wisdom is it's just there. I mean, Apple has evangelists. I mean, is the the I mean, so we here's a great example. We say, wait a minute, uh, no secular sacred, right? No, how come that we see these other things in society that reflect what we know in our scripture? And we see it happening, but we would never do that. We, you know, we're going to shy away from evangelism unless you want me to talk about my new Apple phone. And then, uh, in which case, I'm going to tell you a lot about my iPhone and blah blah blah. Which yeah. I have a nice one. Do you? I don't have the updated one though. I'm sorry about that. Well, do you have ten? No, I don't. Okay, I'm just wondering. Yeah, I'm not materialistic. I'm a very humble person of the people. You know, you only have nine. Yeah, only nine. Uh, <laughs> no, I have a six. I have a six. I have a six. I have a clunky four. Um, okay, let me talk about. Meryl has a flip phone. We got a five. He, he does. <laughs> yeah. I have a five S. For I'm the record. Proud of it. For the record. Yeah. I updated it last night. That's good. That's good. He just now downloaded it. 03. Um, I got a cloud. The, you became the bishop uh, years ago, early 40s? For, uh, yeah. It, I, it, it's been nine years. 42. Okay. So you've. I am not uh, the oldest pastor in the world, and I people tell me that I look young as well. And so I get, hey, are you the youth minister? Every time someone walks in the door, and I just typically just say yes, and I don't even argue yes. with them anymore. I assume you've gotten that a few times. And, okay, beyond the, the normal awkward, yes, no, I'm just, yeah, you're the bishop, whatever. You, the struggle of being the young guy who's making the decisions um, for the entire region of Texas— how did you get over that? Well, I had been the chief operating officer, to use a, a term, a business term. Uh, we call it canon to the ordinary, means rule of the bishop, essentially. Uh, canon to the canon to the ordinary. That is a is great the title. title. Isn't that a great that title? That is a great exactly. title. And so that's well a, that's essentially the operating officer for the jurisdiction to mm-hmm. to, to help you with some terms. And, and so I think I had already come to terms with some of that. But I don't think you, the other piece of it is um, I was really humbled. I didn't think I was going to be elected. I was humbled by the election. I don't think I necessarily prepared for it in any way, but the the diocese felt like this was something that they wanted me to do. And I, uh, what I would say is that I have had to deal with some very, very difficult situations and that... It, what I have learned about that is typically the one that requires of me something in the decision making process is the one I need to listen to the most. Rarely is a decision that requires nothing of me a good one. Hmm. The one that requires the most of you is typically the right decision. It's, yeah. Why do you think so that is? I, I, well, first of all, I think it's gospel, but I, I, I think that there's, 
that that to make wise decisions, you can't be protected from the consequences of them. Mm. Okay, one of the big decisions I know you had to deal with um, was the Episcopal Church and their relationship with uh, LGBTQ, specifically the ordination of LGBTQ priests. Am I saying? Yeah, you know, you have it all. Yeah, and, and marriage. And marriage. Uh, so Meryl was telling me that, uh, the other day, so you have uh, a bishop in New Hampshire who, your election's very foreign to me, so I don't fully grasp how that works. I, I get the idea of election, I'm an American. But uh, someone up north in New, the New England area becomes uh, appointed to a high position, and he is uh, uh, a member of the LGBTQ community, a gay man. And married. And he's married. And so that creates havoc amongst the right. entire church. Right. Uh, long story short, the solution that, as I understand it, that you come to down here is to let basically each individual church make their decision on how they're going to handle that. Is that that's true? Fair re- recap of it. Mm-hmm. When you're going through that process, how did that decision cost the most of you? Uh. So the, I'll just tell you a story. So in the middle of navigating all of this, um, I uh, Secretary James Baker was helping me with the thinking process. Thinking Secretary James Baker, right? A f- former Secretary of State James yes. Baker, and he was helping me navigate the process of this. And I called him one day because I was r- very fearful. I was very afraid of what was what the outcomes could be. Um, and and he just, first of all, he took the phone call, which was an amazing thing because he was in the midst of negotiating a treaty for the president. But um, Obama <laughs> had asked him to do this treaty work. So, Do you think your, your deal was more important than Obama's? I think he's a good <laughs> Episcopalian. So he answered the call of his bishop. <laughs> <laughs> That'll help him in the afterlife, right? I'm sure it will. Sure. If, if, I, if I believe that, that would be good. But uh, <laughs> so he takes the call. Uh, so he, he takes the call, and he says, and, and he says, in the midst of my whining, because I was whining about it, he says, yeah. "Bishop, uh, you are our bishop. We chose you as our bishop, and yes, not everybody's going to like your decision. You need to do it, and we expect you to be our bishop." And basically, he said, "Man up." I mean, to, yep. to 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 put it bluntly, and. And I think part of, to answer your question, the reason why that costs the most is because I had to overcome the fear of people not liking me, the fear of what would people think in the long run. Was I destroying the church by doing this work for us? Was I, I mean, you know, so all of the darkness that haunts a leader uh, in any decision of major consequence. And I, and I think that's a leadership thing. I think and leaders come up to a major decision that they have to make. Now, so you said, oh, all the congregation. Yes, but I had to allow them to make that. I was the one who said, I'm going to create space in the midst of a conservative diocese, and I'm going to invite you to make space where we allow a few people to do this. Mm-hmm. And and so I think when you do that, when, as a leader, when you step out, and I think this is true in all leadership, when you do that, you are haunted by the demons uh, of your of your own life. You're haunted by the demon of failure. You're haunted by the demon of success. I mean, so, mm-hmm. you know, the, that there is a true darkness you have to walk through and overcome that is sacrificial. It is, 
It is to walk into a tomb to allow parts of you that are dependent upon what other people think of you in this particular situation to die in order that you may get across to the other decision and what life may be beyond that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect something, sense. Something like that? Yeah, I can say that as a priest in the Diocese of Texas, that a subtext in all of our gatherings was... Uh, what is your stance on human sexuality stuff? And after uh, the bishop brought everybody together uh, to, and wrote the book Unity and Mission, and we began to realize we weren't thinking about all that anymore. We weren't judging people. Are they with me? Are they against me? There was a, a the air, the air quality in the room changed. Mm-hmm. The next diocesan council, the next uh, clergy conference gathering of the priests and and there was a, a warmer, brighter, cleaner conversation. And it was not that we had, people had necessarily all changed to some similar standpoint or position. It was because uh, there was a moment of, of, of decision, and it had been done well, and you'd received some help, and you had gathered some, some priests and critical lay people together, and they came to respect one another in conversation. Hmm. And that set up for the entire diocese a recognition that we just don't have to hurt like this and judge like this. And so it's almost like there was a healing that took place. Yeah. And it's powerful stuff. And I think the, I mean, obviously, I think the Secretary of State really helped you think that through and and kind of bring that, enable that to happen. But it was a a moment, a crucial moment, and it has brought great health to us. No, and I couldn't have done it without the 30. I mean, there were 30, I think it's really important. There were, you know, we painstakingly went to 30 people individually and built a group slowly. So starting out with two, we started out with two people on the opposite side. I started out with two people. I went to one, and I went to the other, and then I put them together, and then I went to another. You know that I basically used the skills that I had learned in conflict mediation to build a cadre of people of diverse opinions all across the spectrum, uh, uh, LGBTQ and straight, all of them in the room together, but all people who were willing to risk community and relationship to be unified around their mission uh, uh, the mission of of the gospel and evangelism and service to the world that they could overcome their and i think that's true that that seed of people then you know uh began to show and evolve and i did i think it created space we are a very conservative diocese we are not a liberal diocese by any stretch of the imagination by number, by theology, or anything on this issue of sexuality. We are a conservative diocese, but we have made room in ourselves to encompass those who are, are different. And so it's been a miraculous thing to see. And we still, it's not like all of a sudden we have 156 churches, 156 churches are doing, are marriage, marrying gay and lesbian. No, we still have only about 25. I mean, and, and so the vast majority of our churches still don't do this, but they can cooperate across every other sphere to do the common work that we think we have to do as church. So it's been a miraculous thing to be invited uh, to, to do on behalf of the church. I think that's the big question for the future of the church is how do we cooperate with people who have different 
conclusions oh, on important issues in us and how do you read? Uh, how, how can you get together when you read text differently? And I think the church has struggled when she hasn't had the ability to have plurality opinions on secondary issues. And instead you elevate those secondary issues to being central issues. And, um, there's trouble. So I, 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 I I'm glad I'm not in your seat. I, I would like the, the sweet collar, but that's about it. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a tough job, but I, I appreciate the time. This has been Thank great. You. Your newest book is the Jesus heist, the Jesus heist. And it's out and it's, and it's not a, particularly Episcopal book. I mean, certainly I'm an Episcopalian and I wrote it, but it's not a particular, out of all of the other books, it, it deals less, it is a broader book. I mm-hmm. think, you know? As the bishop, is it your responsibility to try to convert other pastors to leave their denomination to become Episcopalian? No. Do you get a reward if you do that? Uh, no. Okay. I didn't no, know. and I don't really want to. I actually don't. I mean, we're, we certainly welcome everybody, but we uh, we think the world is better off if Christians from a variety of denominations and faith perspectives stand up and say, wait a minute, we actually would like to say something about these poor people who are oppressed over here. When when you stand up with Merrill, when we do that with Roman Catholics and Buddhists and um, uh, Baptists and every spectrum of faithful and an interfaith way and offer that maybe God intends something different than the world that is quite nightmarish for most of the people in it right now. That is a much more powerful voice for us. So uh, I, 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 we love having people come to the Episcopal Church and finding us. We would hope that more people who are lost would find a church, a place, a faithful community where they could find a little bit of hope in a sea of hopelessness. Yeah, that's good. Well, I know you're not Merrill's boss, but he's done a great job of creating unity across the street, and it's been a great blessing to our church. So if you can give him a raise, we would definitely support that. Uh, I would, I'm, we're in favor of that at all times. Thank you very much. If I yeah. get a raise from the bishop somehow, that's, that's pretty awesome. You can take me to lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be pretty unusual if that were to happen. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>